The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. I've interviewed many successful people over the years, and one thing I find fascinating is that many of them don't consider themselves business savvy. Take the owners of Tightknit Brewing. They turn to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards and do all of it in one place with the Chase mobile app. And that's helped these brew-loving friends turn a passion into a business. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. member FDIC. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Pushkin. This is Talk Easy. I'm Sam Fragoso. Welcome to the show. Today, I am joined by attorney Neil Katyal. Katyal was formerly the Solicitor General under the Obama administration. He's since gone on to run one of the largest Supreme Court practices at a law firm in D.C. He's also a professor of constitutional law at Georgetown University. If you've been following the Roe v. Wade debates or the most recent case around the insurrection, there's a good chance you've seen Neil on MSNBC or in the New York Times. But for our conversation today, I wanted to focus on the Mississippi case, Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Organization. A month ago, a draft opinion written by Justice Samuel Alito was leaked to Politico. The opinion was a full-throated repudiation of the 1973 decision, which guaranteed federal constitutional protections of abortion rights. Not to mention the 1992 decision, Planned Parenthood v. Casey, that largely maintained that right. As Politico reported, this leak is the first time in modern history that a court opinion has become public before it issues its ruling. Now, in the intervening month, there's been a lot of dialogue around the nature of the leak, its origins, its motives. But in this episode, I wanted to understand legally, constitutionally, why Alito's draft opinion may become the law of the land. 
And to do that, we spent a lot of time diving into the actual court transcripts of Roe v. Wade, Planned Parenthood v. Casey, and now this most recent case from Mississippi. Neil, having argued over 40 cases in front of the Supreme Court, is uniquely qualified to give context and clarity in this moment. So with that, we discuss the history of these decisions, the constitutionality of Alito's draft opinion, and what we can expect from the courts should that opinion come to pass. This is Neil Katyal. Neil Katyal, pleasure to meet you. Pleasure's mine, my friend. Oh, we're already friends? We are. Wow. Well, I've listened to you, so, <laughs> you know. If you just listen to the show, you'll like me a lot more. I don't, I don't know how you're going to feel after all this. <laughs> <laughs> As you know, a month ago, the initial draft opinion of Justice Samuel Alita was leaked to Politico. I'm curious, in the intervening month between that leak and now, how have you processed his draft opinion. I imagine you've had more time to look into it. I mean, every day I feel horrible, Sam. We are taking the hugest step backward for women in our lifetimes. You know, I wake up with a pit in my stomach most days. So, you know, Roe versus Wade is a 1972 Supreme Court decision, seven to two. There's nine justices on the Supreme Court. Seven of them said, that the right to privacy guarantees a woman's right to abortion, at least through the 24th or 25th week. You know, that had huge changes for our society in so many positive ways, including, you know, who goes to college and who has uh, economic opportunities and so many things. And from 72 to 92, the Republican Party launched a concerted effort against Roe versus Wade, even though seven of the nine justices in the Roe versus Wade decision were appointed by Republican presidents. But they made that a huge campaign issue. Roe looked like it was under attack. And then in 1992, the Supreme Court, led by a trio of Republican-appointed justices, Justices Kennedy, O'Connor, and Souter, said, you know, we know people disagree with Roe, but it is so important to the fabric of our society at this point, and social expectations have crystallized around it. We can't overrule it. And that's where we kind of thought things were until this draft opinion. Um, this draft opinion is as scary as the doomsdayers, you know, who you hear about on podcasts and on TV say. I mean, this is essentially there isn't a right to abortion. There doesn't even appear to be much of a right to privacy left after this decision. It is everything that the hard right of the Republican Party wants. Now, in Planned Parenthood versus Casey, continuously bring up this star decisis principle, which is that you rely on things that are decided. It literally means in Latin, the thing is decided. And here we've had 49 years of people believing that they have a constitutional right to choose to have an abortion. That principle is now being contested. If you read the Alito draft opinion, it seems to be contested successfully. So let me, you know, start by saying the Supreme Court, like most Anglo-American legal systems, rely on what you call stare decisis, the idea of precedent, that you don't just reinvent the rule book every single time a case comes before you. But it's a soft principle. So, you know, I've certainly, you know, I've argued 45 cases at the Supreme Court, 
in some of them, the court overrules its prior precedent. Absolutely. But there are some cases, and this gets to your question about Planned Parenthood versus Casey, the 1992 decision that I obliquely referenced and that you've now brought up by name. There's some decisions in which precedent is ultimately important, that it's a super precedent um, of sorts. And Planned Parenthood versus Casey says Roe versus Wade is one of those. It's one of the few decisions Americans know by name. And because of that, like Brown versus Board of Education, or in my view, Obergefell, the uh, marriage equality case, these are things that for the court to go back on really does fundamentally make the court look like a junior varsity legislature, just you know, bowing to the whims of polls and things like that and not doing law. Fall into the whims of polls. Overturning Roe would not be prey to polls. I mean, polls suggest that 27% of Americans believe Roe v. Wade should be overturned. So this seems to be about something else. And I want to just get to the actual text here from Justice Alito. He writes, after all this, the court has turned to precedent. Citing a broad array of cases, the court found support for a constitutional right of personal privacy but it conflated two very different meanings of the term, the right to shield information from disclosure and the right to make and implement important personal decision without governmental interference. Has there been a conflation? What is he getting at here? Yeah, so first, you're absolutely right to point out that the polls are very much against this draft opinion by Justice Alito. So, you know, I don't think that should matter in the sense of doing constitutional law. But what it does suggest to me is that what Planned Parenthood versus Casey said is absolutely right, that regardless of how one thinks about abortion in the 1970s, it's now something that Americans have taken for granted, that generations of women and men have grown up with that. And so for the Supreme Court to kind of rip that away and change the law so suddenly, it really does undo the fabric of the law and the fabric of society more generally. Now, what Justice Alito is saying in that passage that you're reading is essentially might be a good thing to have abortion rights, but it's not a guarantee in the Constitution. And the way he gets there is by saying, in order to interpret the Constitution, we're to look to whether the right was originally and historically one that was deeply intrinsic to our society. And that kind of really robust, backward-looking way of thinking about constitutional law is, of course, really dangerous. I mean, if we're going to be playing by 1787 rules, I'm not even sure you could be talking to me. And certainly, you know, women couldn't vote. African-Americans couldn't vote. You know, so many things have changed in our society. You know, that's why I think what Rove said, written by Justice Blackman, a Republican appointee, and what Planned Parenthood versus Casey said is, our society has changed to the point. And we, if we were to look at the founders' ideals and we abstract them to today and say, would our founders have thought today, given all the advances in society, this is a constitutional right or not. And it's very hard for me to see how it's not a constitutional right. I totally understand how, as a matter of individual conscience, a woman might decide not to have an abortion or to have an abortion. But that seems to me about the zone of privacy and equality that is left to the individual woman and not to five people or six people in Washington, D.C. Right. And to your point, Alito makes mention in this draft opinion saying the Constitution makes no reference to abortion and no such right is implicitly protected by any constitutional provision. 
You have said in a few different interviews that this is not just an outdated idea of the law, but a wrong account of what our founders gave us. What do you mean by that, a wrong account? Yeah, so I mean, my touchstone in constitutional law is an opinion written by Chief Justice John Marshall in 1819 called McCulloch versus Maryland. And when I teach constitutional law, I spend several weeks on that opinion because what the Chief Justice says in that case is the Constitution only marks the great outlines of government power. And it leaves a lot to implication. And what Justice Marshall says is, you know, the Constitution was intended to endure for ages to come. It's flexible and adaptive. By that, I mean, you can't like play by 1787 rules. It doesn't make sense. Like just to take one example, that passage, Sam, that you just read about, well, the word abortion's not in the Constitution. Oh, right to travel is not in the Constitution either. Are we going to sit there and think that a state can make it criminal for you to go from California to Nevada or something like that? That's absurd. And the whole idea behind the Ninth Amendment, which says that the rights you know, not enumerated are still reserved to the people, is to say we don't do constitutional interpretation that way. We think about it in a broader sense. I mean, that's the promise that our founders gave us. It's why people like my parents came to this country from another because of the promises of liberty and the pursuit of happiness. And not all of that can be codified in a short constitution. As Chief Justice Marshall says in McCulloch, the constitution shouldn't have the prolixity of a legal code. It shouldn't be like every jot and tittle and every individual right you have has to be specified. But the counter argument that they're making is that the right to travel, unlike Roe, does not include the destruction of fetal life. Over and over again, they return to this term, the destruction of fetal life. What's your defense of that? Well, I can't defend what Justice Alito said there, but I will defend what I'm saying, which is that I think his method of interpretation has two flaws. One is there's no reason why it's limited to fetal life. I mean, states will have all sorts of other interests, including, by the way, on a right to travel. Already, states are contemplating legislation to ban a woman from going across state lines to get an abortion in another state. So let's say, you know, you live in Mississippi, uh, the case where this case, uh, the Alito case is from, and you want to take a plane and go to Massachusetts and get an abortion. Well, there's now active discussion over preventing that person and making it a crime for that woman to go fly to Massachusetts and make it a crime for anyone to help her as she does that. And what will the rationale be for that state law when it's challenged in court? Protection of fetal life. So it's the same rationale, and it will radiate far beyond just simply abortion cases. There's no reason why, once you go down the Alito path, which is it's got to be in the Constitution, the word's got to be in the Constitution or so deeply rooted in the traditions of the people in order for it to be a constitutional right, there's no reason why it stops it at, um, uh, at fetal life. And so, in, and that's really my second point, which is just, it's the legal test he uses that's so dangerous that will set us backward. Louisiana's already introducing legislation to ban certain forms of contraception, like IUDs. What's their rationale for it? Protection of fetal life. The effect of this draft opinion, or as Julie uh, Rinkelman, the lawyer arguing the case, says, the effect of the philosophy behind the attack by Mississippi is to essentially entrench 
discrimination against women. You know, you don't read the Constitution like a tax code looking for, you know, everything to be specified. Rather, you have to read it at a higher level of generality because it's an evolving document that's designed to protect us. I mean, this is why, you know, I know it's, you know, very ubiquitous thing to attack the founders for all sorts of their problems, and they had them. But they left us this majestic document and a philosophy behind the document, which engineers the expansion of individual rights, whether it's African-Americans or LGBT folks or women. And what the effect is of the Justice Alito draft opinion is to really retrench on that and say, no, we're going to play by 1787 rules strictly, even though the founders themselves in the Ninth Amendment said, we don't want you to play by those rules and read the Constitution so strictly. So right from the jump, where we've already seen the effects you're talking about is in Oklahoma. In late May, Governor Kevin Stitt signed into law the nation's strictest abortion ban, making the state the first in the nation to effectively end availability of the procedure. As NPR reports, state lawmakers approved the ban enforced by civil lawsuits rather than criminal prosecution, similar to a Texas law that was passed last year. The law takes effect immediately upon Stitt's signature and prohibits all abortions with few exceptions. Abortion providers have said they will stop performing the procedure as soon as the bill is signed. How have you made sense of this new law coming out of Oklahoma? Well, the law was predictable. For three years now, I've been saying that the United States Congress has to pass a law to sweep away, to preempt these scary state laws, which we all knew were coming. You know, and I tried everything I could. I wrote op-ed after op-ed. You know, I even recorded a B-side to a song about it. You know, anything I could do. That was your first mistake. It needed to be on the A-side. Exactly. <laughs> you don't want to hear my A-side version. But Oklahoma's law was predictable. It's not actually, Sam, all that different than the Mississippi law or other laws in practice. Because when you have a six-week or 15-week ban and you've got so many restrictions on providers, you already are down to like one clinic in a state anyway. The Texas law was six weeks, is that right? The Texas law is six weeks, the Mississippi law is 15 weeks, yeah. But, you know, Oklahoma, they're all in a you know, competition to try and see who could be more, you know, quote unquote, pro-life when it comes to this. Obviously, when it comes to, you know, gun control or something like else, you know, the life is gets thrown out the window. But um, I wasn't surprised by the Oklahoma law. I guess what I am surprised by is that there isn't more of a public reaction to this draft. Now, maybe it's because hope springs eternal and people think that this draft opinion, because it is a leak, won't be the ultimate decision. But if it is the ultimate decision, and you know, we'll probably know in about a month or so, I can't see anything but absolute mass demonstrations and a call for really Congress to do something. The law in Oklahoma, which comes on the heels of what was passed in Texas, it encourages, as you've talked about, these kind of vigilantes that, that, that could receive some bounty fee for turning in someone that is either getting an abortion or is aiding and abetting someone that wants to get an abortion. Can you give more context around this? Yeah. So the bounty provisions were actually a legal trick that doesn't matter anymore. So they were done by some lawyers in Texas 
so that you couldn't actually file a lawsuit to stop the Texas law. So it was just a trick because they knew Roe versus Wade was the law of the land, but they wanted to restrict abortion. And so they came up with this bounty provision, which had the legal fiction of basically saying, well, the state's not enforcing the law, individuals are, and therefore you're not allowed to file a lawsuit to stop this. It doesn't matter anymore, Sam, because it, at least under this draft opinion, because now Roe versus Wade is no longer the substantive law of the land. So you don't need this procedural trick anymore. Now, it can be used in other cases, you know, anything else that's a right. Gay marriage is a right. Um, well, could you have a bounty provision that makes it, you know, so that you can sue anyone who facilitates an LGBT wedding or something like that? I suppose you could, and then we would be back in the same thicket. You know, it's fundamentally a betrayal of what our Constitution's about. I mean, as, you know, another opinion by Chief Justice Marshall said in 1803, Marbury versus Madison, where there's a constitutional right, there must be a remedy. That's the essence of the American legal system. And what these folks are saying is, nope, there's no remedy. So even though marriage equality is a right, a state can pass this bounty provision and take it away from you and you can't go into court. That's crazy. You know, in listening to everything you just mentioned, bounties, vigilantes, women clandestinely crossing state lines to get an abortion, it sounds a lot like The Handmaid's Tale. And when I sat with Margaret Atwood earlier this year on the show, she said, if the state decides it's going to own women's bodies, it should pay for all of that. If you don't have a choice as to what your body is being used for, then that is a state decision. All those expenses should be covered, including postnatal care. She's got it absolutely right. But this is a low moment in which we really have to take it on ourselves to bend the arc back toward justice because, you know, we're not at Handmaid's Tale yet. But, you know, like I said, there's laws out there like these laws restricting travel to get abortions or Louisiana's restricting IUDs. That's unthinkable for our lifetimes to have something like that happen. Is it unthinkable? To me, it is. I mean, I'm getting my mind around it over the last month, obviously. I guess I asked that because you're someone who's argued in front of the court. You teach law. You're a student of the court. I guess I'm surprised that you're surprised that this is where we are, given how the last 10 years have, have looked. Yeah, no, well, as I say, I am an optimist. <laughs> and uh, certainly President Trump uh, threatened my optimism on a daily basis and other things too. Um, you know, Guantanamo, which was my very first Supreme Court case, really did also shake my belief in what this country stood for. But, you know, when I argued that case, we won it in the Supreme Court and the Constitution sided with the little guy over President Bush. You know, there's so many examples of that where people have done the right thing. I guess I did hope that the court was going to do the right thing here. And so seeing that draft opinion, particularly in such an extreme way, you know, it's one thing had they upheld the Mississippi law, you know, on narrow grounds, but to do it in this kind of and have it in a constitutional approach that enables all the kind of mischief we're talking about. We've been talking about, Sam, about IUDs or travel restrictions and the like. That, honestly, I do think has been unthinkable in my mind. And again, it may be just that my optimistic nature, but um, 
uh, in general, I see the Constitution moving towards more equality, whether you know it's Brown on race or Obergefell on marriage equality or so many Reed versus Reed and other cases on women. I seem to have zapped all the optimism you, you may have had at the beginning of this call. Nope. Nope. I'm still fundamentally optimistic over the long term because I do think a decision like this, if the Alito opinion draft becomes the law of the land, will induce people to stand up for their constitutional rights and will induce people to say, hey, presidential elections really matter and I can't just stay home. And even if they're going to make it really hard for me to vote and they'll criminalize giving me a bottle of water in line and they'll make the lines 10 hours long for me to vote, I think people are going to do it because they know what this country is about fundamentally at its core. And even I think people who believe that life begins at conception will stand up and say, yeah, that's my view, but that's not the view I'm going to impose on the rest of the world. So yes, I am fundamentally still optimistic, but I think we're in a really low period. There's the Neil Katya I know and love. Was wondering when he was going to come out. <laughs> when we come back, let's let's try to figure out what happens next. Hello, hello. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. Let me tell you an unconventional story about a healthcare group that wanted to improve their efficiency. Boston Children's Hospital. They were already a leading pediatric facility. Their patient outcomes, workflows, and delivery of care were already great. But they wondered, how can we make it better? So the hospital got to work. Their idea was to build what they called clinical mobility meaning a system which would allow their staff to access information and interact with patients on mobile devices anywhere in the hospital. And what made that possible? 5G. The hospital rebuilt their entire system with 5G technology at its core. That infrastructure now supports thousands of phones and tablets so practitioners can communicate with patients on a whole new level. Boston Children's also made sure the system could flex and scale to handle medical advancements like robotic surgery and virtual reality for training and research. This was worlds away from how they had previously operated. This innovative work hasn't gone unnoticed, first by patients, but also by their peers. Boston Children's was a first place winner in the industry category at last year's unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business an event that celebrates customers who've dared to innovate for the sake of innovation. If the Boston Children's story rings a bell with you, if your team has asked the same questions about building a better business solution, I encourage you to enter this year's awards. It's a great way to be recognized for smart, disruptive thinking in front of some of your industry's most influential leaders. You can enter at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards that's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. I'll save you a seat. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. 
Join hosts Ben Walter, CEO of Chase for Business, and Tanya Nebo, a lawyer and business consultant, on the storytelling journeys of trials, tribulations, and triumphs that hinged on a single event, a split-second decision, or even a stroke of luck. Whether the story is about a warehouse going up in flames or a former partner stealing a whole roster of clients, each episode will showcase the grit, determination, and resourcefulness a small business owner needed to turn a pivotal situation into a springboard for success. Listen to The Unshakables now and learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase and a member FDIC 2024, J.P. Morgan Chase & Co. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year, equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats, even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com iHeart. That's LifeLock.com iHeart to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. Coming back, you've mentioned the slippery slope of overturning Roe in this interview and and in many other interviews. Basically, if the court does this, there's no telling which cases they may go after next, whether that's contraception in Griswold v. Connecticut, same-sex in Lawrence v. Texas, or same-sex marriage in Oberfell v. Hodges. I think there's a silver lining here. But in this recent Mississippi case, Justice Sotomayor and Justice Barrett asked the petitioners whether overturning Roe would call these past cases into question. And what Mr. Stewart said was, and I'm quoting from the transcript, he says, no, first of all, I think the vast run of those cases, Griswold, Lawrence, Obergefell, are cases that draw clear rules. You can't ban contraception. You can't ban intimate romantic relationships between consenting adults. You can't ban marriage of people of the same sex. There are clear rules that have engendered strong reliance interests and that have not produced negative consequences. I'd add that none of them also involve the purposeful termination of a human life. Again, moreover, in his draft opinion, Alito reaffirmed this position, saying, To ensure that our decision is not misunderstood or mischaracterized, we emphasize that our decision concerns the constitutional right to abortion and no other right. Nothing in this opinion should be understood to cast doubt on precedents that do not concern abortion. So my question to you, since you've argued that this decision could concern other constitutional rights, do you fundamentally not believe these claims 
from Stuart and Alito. I think that Justice Alito's draft opinion protests too much. You know, I take him at his word. He's saying the decision today doesn't deal with contraception, doesn't deal with marriage equality or anything else. It deals with abortion. Of course, every case deals with the facts before the court in that individual case. The question is, does the legal reasoning radiate beyond the facts at hand? What does that mean? Take the legal test that Justice Alito uses, which is, is the word abortion in the Constitution or is it deeply rooted in the traditions of the people? That's not a test about abortion. He's giving you a test about how he reads the Constitution. So that's the first thing I would say, Sam. The second is, it goes a lot to kind of the spirit of what you think the Supreme Court is about. And let me sketch out two different extreme polls. One is the one we've been talking about that I don't need to harp on anymore, this Alito draft opinion and the retrenchment on rights and the shattering of social expectations. The other is is Obergefell. You know, I, I had the privilege of working on that case with so many other people who argued it. I, I didn't, the people who were, you know, spent their lives on it, but I did spend several years working on it. For context, can you explain that case? Yeah, so, so many different states restricted marriage and limited it to a, a marriage between one man and one woman. And a bunch of LGBT activists challenged that and said it was unconstitutional. And honestly, many people believe that these challenges couldn't win, that the Supreme Court wouldn't do that. And it was challenged as a violation of equal protection under our laws. You know, the Supreme Court never tells you when they're going to release an opinion. So we trudge up every day to the court, seeing if it'll come down. And I remember we walked in on like the second to last day of the Supreme Court term. There were about 100 protesters outside on the Supreme Court steps, 50 of them saying, you know, gay marriage is an abomination and 50 saying it was a constitutional right. We walked in, we heard the opinion coming down. Justice Kennedy was reading the opinion. And for six minutes, it was Marriage has historically been between a man and a woman, that whole historical test. And our hearts sank because we were thinking we lost. Then Justice Kennedy said, the tradition doesn't stop there. And then he abstracted to say what the right of marriage was about. It wasn't about sexual orientation. And it was beautiful language. And when we came out of the Supreme Court, there were thousands of people on the Supreme Court plaza linking their arms together, singing America the Beautiful. And you think that's what the Constitution's about. That's what the Supreme Court is about. It's about protecting individual rights, not denigrating them. When you lay out the argument like that, and I'm sure you've laid it out to men and women on the conservative side of this issue, how do they respond to that? I think they say, look, it's not our job. You want to protect abortion rights? Go get a law passed in Congress and do so. We, the Supreme Court, can only read the strict text of the Constitution. And to that I say, that's never been the way the law has been read before. But by the way, it's not the way the conservative Supreme Court reads the law and other things. Like I argued the constitutionality of the Voting Rights Act, and I won it back in 2009, but four years later in a case called Shelby County, the Supreme Court struck down the Constitutionality of the Voting Rights Act, saying it violated something called the equal footing doctrine in the Constitution. Now, I've read the Constitution thousands of times. If I look for those words, as Justice Alito would ask me to, ain't in there, nowhere in there, nowhere. But yet, oh, we'll have a different test when it comes to that, the expansion of voting rights, than when it comes to 
the expansion of women's rights. That seems frightening. Last month in the Washington Post, you wrote, here's a disconcerting fact. Of the Supreme Court decisions that conservatives have been agitating to overturn, Roe was the hardest target. Why is Roe the hardest target? Because Roe is the one case that conservative justices have looked at in 1992 in that decision you mentioned, Sam, Planned Parenthood versus Casey, and said, it's a super precedent. It's not something we can overrule without shattering social expectations. Other decisions, you know, banking regulation or, you know, whatever, cosmetics law, you know, easy to just change views on that. But something like this that all Americans know by name, and the only reason that this case is coming out differently than it has for every year in our lifetimes is because President Trump put these justices on the Supreme Court. That makes constitutional law look not like law, but just like ordinary politics. It's just some victories he got in the Senate. And that's a really dangerous thing for law. You know, I, I respect the Supreme Court deeply. It's always a privilege to argue in front of it. And the last thing you want to do is leave Americans with the idea that on the most fundamental matters, it doesn't turn on law, it turns on the individual personalities of the justices. So let's think about the Supreme Court more broadly. You mentioned, once again, Planned Parenthood versus Casey in 1992. From that case, Justice O'Connor, Justice Kennedy, and Justice Souter delivered the opinion from the court, writing overruling Roe's central holding would not only reach an unjustifiable result under stare decisis principles, but would seriously weaken the court's capacity to exercise the judicial power and to function as a Supreme Court of a nation dedicated to the rule of law. It continued, the country's loss of confidence in the judiciary would be underscored by condemnation for the court's failure to keep faith with those who support the decision at a cost to themselves. So with everything we've talked about, do you believe upending Roe would, as those justices wrote, seriously weaken the court's capacity to exercise judicial power? I do. You know, I've done a lot of interviews. Sam, nobody's read that passage to me before. And it's a crucial passage because it's not some Democratic wild eye, you know, strategist saying this. These are Republican justices on the Supreme Court in a written opinion warning about the consequences to the Supreme Court if they overrule Roe. And that's why I say Roe is the hardest target. And so I don't think that this decision is limited to just abortion. And I think it's going to radiate far more broadly, because if you can do it here, you can do it anywhere. Tell me how it radiates and, and where you expect it to radiate. Yeah. So the domino effect, you know, could be in any number of places. It could be in the right to travel and restrictions on crossing state lines to get an abortion. It could be on contraception because Roe versus Wade is rooted in an earlier Supreme Court case from seven years before called Griswold versus Connecticut, which said that there was a right to get contraception, a right to privacy. And if you play the same game of you know, is there a historically deeply rooted right to contraception? You could imagine the court playing the same game when it comes to contraception. And certainly you can imagine the court doing the same thing with marriage equality. I mean, marriage equality, we won it, but it was a five to four decision. And Chief Justice Roberts in dissent said, nope, this is a decision for the people to make, 
The Constitution nowhere in the text of it guarantees a right to marriage equality. And so again, the same test that the court lays out in this draft opinion that undoes the right to abortion can be used to undo these other constitutional rights. But as you wrote in the Washington Post, that line I quoted, of the Supreme Court decisions that conservatives have been agitating to overturn, Roe was the hardest target. What are the other Supreme Court decisions conservatives have been agitating to overturn? Because I have not seen many conservative elected officials running a campaign on ending marriage equality or eliminating contraception. Well, we can start, Sam, with Obamacare, which there was presidential campaigns and Senate campaigns and House campaigns all about that. And yet the Supreme Court did the right thing there, sometimes by five to four decisions, sometimes by six to three, but of upholding Obamacare. I have the case from Hawaii at the Supreme Court now. Hawaii has a law from 1852 that bans the open carrying of firearms, like at Starbucks and the like. And conservatives are agitating for that to be a constitutional right, the right to openly carry firearms and sweep away laws that have been around for 170 years. And what, what's your counter to that? Uh, on the gun control case? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that the Second Amendment has always been understood and the right to bear arms has always been understood as having the ability of government to reasonably restrict things for the public safety. And so even if you do think, as the conservatives now do, that carrying guns is an individual right, not a collective right of the militia or something like that, it's still always been subject to restriction. And so state after state for you know decades has been restricting this. As we look ahead, do you believe Alito's draft opinion will come to pass? I honestly have no way of knowing that. Nobody does. We're all just kind of guessing. So I will tell you with every fiber of my body, I sure hope it doesn't. But since you are guessing, what do you guess? Yeah, I don't want to guess because honestly, my guess is as good as anyone else's. I'm just, you know, so, yeah. If you don't guess, then I have to quote what you did guess last month in the New York Times. <laughs> so if you need me to do that, I will. Because last month in the Times, you guessed, I would think the court might want to dismiss the case as improvidently granted, given everything else that happened. Reset it for argument yes. and hear the case again next year. Walk me through the case of something being improvidently granted. What, what does that mean for people who don't spend time in a courtroom? Right. So, you know, I took your question initially to be what's the court ultimately going to do on the abortion case? And what I said last month was that the court does have an option available to it, which is to delay the decision and not have it come out at the end of the term the way that most all Supreme Court decisions do. And there's two different options for them there. One is to reset the case for a re-oral argument next fall. That actually happened in Roe versus Wade itself. So sometimes that happens. It's a way to get some more views um, and frankly, you know, buy some times for them to, you know, ventilate the issues. The other is to just say, you know, we took this case, we're going to dismiss it as improvidently granted. Um, it's just, you know, for one, whatever reason, and they don't have to exp explain the reason, they decide we're not going to decide the case and just kick the can down the road. Neither of these, Sam, is fully satisfying, of course. Both will leave that cloud hanging over the future of abortion rights. 
But I also just think the leak is so historically unprecedented that it's a, a good option for the court to think about using here. So they've done things like this in the past, including in big, high-profile cases. But that still doesn't answer the fundamental question you're asking me, which is, what's the court ultimately going to do? And we have this draft opinion. It obviously reflects the views of Justice Alito and the tentative views of at least four other justices on the Supreme Court. But sometimes people change their opinions from drafts. So, you know, my hope springs eternal that the court will ultimately do the right thing. You know, of the 37 questions I've asked you, this is the only one where you've started to sound like a politician. Is this in part because you're terrified of the answer? I don't think it's that. It's honestly, and I don't mean to sound like a politician, it's honestly that the matrix of factors that goes into the question, uh, to answering your question, like, is the draft opinion going to be the final draft? In some sense, it's not law, Sam. It's your guess is as good as mine. It's psychology at this point. It's, you know, are people going to be influenced by the blowback? Can the justices feel comfortable changing their minds from a tentative opinion? Do they feel like they'll be bowing to public pressure in one way or the other? What I'm telling you is my ability runs out here. I don't know any more, honestly, than anyone else. So I have two things for you. One, your guess is much better than mine, given that you've argued, what, over 45 cases in front of the Supreme Court. You've worked for Justice Breyer. I'd say you're much more qualified than me sitting in a closet. Well, uh, well, just on that, on the closet thing, I mean... On the closet thing? <laughs> you in the closet. Um, uh, <laughs> we could edit that out. <laughs> um, so just on that, on what you said, Sam, yes, I've done some of those things at the Supreme Court, but what I want to say to our audience is we've never had a leak of a draft opinion before. So my entire rule book, everything that I've thought about for two decades plus is just not applicable in this kind of crazy, unusual situation. So you have to throw out the playbook that you've forever operated with. Yeah. As we leave, there's been so much discussion around this case and the power that the Supreme Court holds. And I wonder, as someone who's had as much experience with this branch as you've had, what is something about the Supreme Court that maybe the American people don't understand, or maybe it's a misconception they do have. And I know you're more qualified to answer since you've had so much experience. Yeah. So one is that we tend to focus as a society on the big hot button cases like Roe versus Wade, but a large number, the percentage of the time, the Supreme Court's unanimous, including on really important things like you know, whether or not your cell phone can be searched, your smartphone, when the cops stop you, they're unanimous in saying it can't, or whether you can patent the human genome and things like breast cancer genes one and two, which is one of my cases, the Supreme Court says you can't unanimously. So there are cases, including really important ones, in which the court does speak with one voice, and they're not like all at loggerheads with one another. And, you know, more generally, I would say, you know, obviously, a lot of people are feeling despondent about the Supreme Court at this particular moment, but this is a court that has done amazing things for our society, whether it's desegregating schools or guaranteeing, as we've talked about, marriage equality or saying that Guantanamo can't be a legal black hole um, where people can be put to death with no due process. You know, 
example after example of where the court has done the right thing. And I'm incredibly optimistic that maybe not just right now, but over the course of our lifetimes, the Supreme Court's going to restore, re- return to that fundamental mission. Right on the steps of the Supreme Court, over the Supreme Court, are the words equal justice under law. And every time I argue a case there, I try and walk in the front door because I want to see those words. I want to think that's what the court's about. And it might not be totally there right now, but I think it can get there again. As much as I love that, and I do, Neil, I do, the signs indicate that Alito's opinion will come to pass. At the very least, even if his specific opinion does not, some watered-down version of Roe v. Wade will come to pass. And so I wonder, as someone who does walk into that building a whole lot and look at those words and really takes in those words you've just quoted, is it harder to believe them in 2022? It would be a heartbreaking event for me and for the country if that's what happens. And our response can't be to go and like physically attack the justices as just happened, you know, we're an attempt on that just over the last few hours. It's got to be to go and agitate for laws in Congress that protect a woman's right to choose. It's got to be to make sure that presidential campaigns focus on the Supreme Court and our constitutional rights. And more generally, like kids and adults all have to understand the blessings of our Constitution and make sure and operationalize them and make them real. That eternal optimist in you, where does it come from in a dark hour like this? Well, I basically have one picture in my Georgetown office, and it's a Frederick Douglass. Because I think about, you know, as bad as things are right now, nothing compared to what he went through. I mean, there was a system under law that kept African Americans in chains. And yet he was optimistic and always thought, that the country's ideals would triumph in the end. And, you know, he embodied Dr. King's idea of bending that arc toward justice. And so we have two choices. One, are we going to just cry and mope and say, you know, everything's over and, you know, and wallow ourselves in gin and tonic or whatever, or are we going to try and do something? And honestly, I prefer the do something strategy. I'm more of a tequila soda person, but I think I get your point. (laughs) And, uh, I thank you for all the work that you've done, for the time that you've given me today, and uh, I hope you're right. Thank you, my friend. It's a real privilege to be with you. Oh, yeah. Are we friends now? We are friends. I guess we were friends from the jump. I hope. At least, you know, I don't (laughs) want to speak for you. but (laughs) Neil Katyo, a pleasure. our show. Special thanks this week to Eric Flanagan, Cynthia Palmer, and of course, Neil Cotio. To learn more about him and his work, visit our website at talkeasypod.com. Once you're on the site, you'll find our back catalog of over 250 episodes. If you enjoyed today's conversation, 
I'd recommend others with Gloria Steinem, Noam Chomsky, Stacey Abrams, Jake Tapper, Anita Hill, Michael Lewis, and Dr. Ashish John. To hear those and more Pushkin podcasts, listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram at TalkEasyPod. If you want to support Talk Easy by purchasing one of our mugs, they come in cream or navy, or our beautiful vinyl record with the inimitable Fran Leibowitz, you can do so at TalkEasyPod.com slash shop. That's TalkEasyPod.com slash shop. If you want to support the show in other ways, the best thing you can do is share the program with a friend. Second best thing you can do is rate this program on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever you listen. Even in 2022, reviewing the show on these platforms is still the best way for new listeners to find Talk Easy. As always, our show would not be possible without our incredible team. Talk Easy is produced by Caroline Reebok. Our executive producer is Janixa Bravo. Our associate producer is Caitlin Dryden. Today's talk was edited by Caitlin Dryden and mixed by Andrew Pastola. Music by Dylan Peck. Illustrations by Krisha Shenoy. Video and graphics by Ian Chang, Derek Gaberzak, Ian Jones, Ethan Seneca, and Layla Register. Special thanks to Patrice Lee, Kaylin Ung, Paulina Suarez, and Shiloh Fagan. I'd also like to thank our team at Pushkin Industries, Justin Richmond, Julia Barton, John Snars, Carrie Brody, David Glover, Heather Fain, Mia LaBelle, Eric Sandler, Nicole Morano, Maggie Taylor, Morgan Ratner, Maya Koenig, Carly Migliori, Jason Gambrell, Malcolm Gladwell, and Jacob Weisberg. I'm Sam Fragoso. Thank you for listening to Talk Easy. Before we go, a brief word about Philip Baker Hall. He passed away earlier this week at the age of 90. He was a guest on this program. But beyond that, he was one of my favorite living, working actors. You've seen him in films like Hard Eight, Boogie Nights, The Truman Show. I don't know about you, but whenever he appeared in something, I knew, okay, we're in good hands here. He had a kind of gravitas to him, both as a performer, but also as a man. Five years ago, we sat together in his dining room with two microphones and a fruit plate. We talked for, I think, three or four hours, charting his remarkable career from stage to screen. And I remember as I was packing up the equipment, because in those days, I brought all my equipment around from home to home to anyone that would open their doors to me. And, and I just remember he said, we should do this again sometime. And you know, sometimes people say that and they don't really mean it. It's, it's more of a pleasantry or a way of being polite, but he meant it. And, you know, we really did stay in touch over the last five years. His birthday, September 10th, comes a day after mine. And around that time, we'd always exchange a note or two Every short film I made, he'd watch and note. He was gracious and warm and encouraging, even when the films were not that good. And I'm going to be honest, a lot of them were not that good. And he didn't have to watch, yet he did. I remember one afternoon, while walking in the West Village, he called me up. He could hear the sound of the street, because in New York, you can always hear the sound of the street. And immediately launched into stories about working in the city throughout the 50s and 60s. I don't know why, but I remember this call so well. I, I was obviously nervous because when your phone says Philip Baker Hall, you think, does he have a wrong number? Did he make a mistake? And I'd grown up loving him in so many movies. And this call, I, I just can't shake it today. Right before we got off, he said, have you seen Hamilton yet? 
I said, no, I, I hadn't seen it yet, but I, but I planned to. And I think the fact that I hadn't seen it made him more animated. And he just launched into this whole beautiful, eloquent monologue about the power of storytelling and how it inspired him as an actor. And him and his wife, Holly, saw it last night and how moved they were by it. He said, it inspired me. It truly inspired me. I wrote that part down. And that, beyond all the great work he gave us, and there is an abundance of it, that is what I'm going to hold on to. He was in his late 80s by then, and yet, just as passionate as that kid that fell in love with acting in Toledo all those years ago. On that call, he was still curious, still capable of being inspired and, in turn, inspiring me. My heart goes out to Holly, his wife of 34 years, and their two daughters, Adela and Anna. And to you, Philip, may you transition peacefully. I'll see you on the other side. And I'll see you next week. Until then, stay safe and so long. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored amongst some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Smart journalism. Fascinating topics. Words that describe CNN's podcast, The Assignment with Audie Cornish. Last year, the Army missed its recruitment goal. It had 65,000 spots to fill and came up 10,000 short of that target. Why is it so hard to recruit? How's the Pentagon responding? And how are the voices of service members on social media shifting the balance? Listen to The Assignment with Audie Cornish wherever you get your podcasts.